0: Tuesday, 2006, February 28. Today is Lecture 37, The Whispers of Creation, which will begin in just a moment. Right, so today, good morning everybody. The, this, the lecture today, I've entitled The Whispers of Creation. It's going to be a continuation of our discussion of the Big Bang Model for the expanding universe. We have a series of observations about the universe we need to explain. The Big Bang Model is our scientific explanation for SAME. Yesterday, we introduced the Big Bang model and looked at two of its particular consequences, the expansion of the universe, measuring the rate of that expansion of the universe, the so-called Hubble parameter, and how we can use that information and the matter density content of the universe to determine the history of that expansion and from that determine the age of the universe. At what point, if I turn the movie backwards, do I see the universe in a hotter, denser, smaller state? Today, we want to continue along in that theme and look at other consequences of saying, making the assertion, that the universe must have been hot and dense in the finite past. What other consequences are there of that? And today's lecture is going to look for, if you will, the whispers of that moment of creation. So the key ideas today is to introduce the fundamental tests of the Big Bang model of the expanding universe. We've already met one of them, we'll meet the other two those are the primordial nucleosynthesis the fact that if i have a hot dense state fusion can occur at least for a very brief epoch in the very stuff out of which the universe is made that this leads to the production out of pure hydrogen or pure energy the production out of originally subatomic particles of elements of deuterium the light the heavy element heavy isotope of hydrogen and helium which we now see around us and it leads to a very small trace amounts of primordial light elements like lithium, beryllium, and boron. Basically, all the early stuff in the periodic table just before carbon, but not carbon. Why is that? The second primary test, fundamental test of the Big Bang model, which gives us great confidence that we're on the right track, is the observation of what's called the cosmic background radiation. This is the ref, relic leftover background radiation, the blackbody radiation, from that hot, dense, opaque phase in the early phases of the Big Bang. We see that today. It's now got it seen to be a blackbody with a temperature of 2.2725, and I see I wrote 2.726 on the yeah, idea slide, oops, It's basically a perfect black body with a temperature of just a little under 3 degrees Kelvin. And we'll see exactly how under 3 degrees Kelvin and how that is measured here in just a little bit. So today, the whispers of creation, we're going to be looking for evidence that the universe really did have a hot, dense state in the finite past. Now, there's three pillars that we say observationally to the Big Bang model. These are the three observational predictions that it makes, which it manages to confirm. We're going to have to go out and test these very rigorously. The first of these we've already seen, namely the expansion of the universe. If the universe was smaller, hotter, and denser in the past, it has obviously expanded and cooled since that time, and we should see that as a measurable finite expansion. Galaxies and everything should be moving far apart from each other, and the amount of rate at which they are expanding away from us, it should be directly proportional to distance, at least over short ranges. Over long ranges, I expect to see some deviations from that due to the detailed information about the curvature of the universe based on its matter and energy content. The other thing I can do as a test is I can run the clock backwards, and I can ask, given the matter and energy content of the universe, which sets the curvature of space-time, and given the rate of expansion, if I run that back into the past, when was it at the initial state? When was time zero for the Big Bang? And I compare that, I find a number of about 14 billion years, and that's a good number because that number is older than the oldest stars. It's consistent with the ages of the oldest stars we see in globular clusters in the Milky Way, which is good. You don't want to have an expansion predicting a universe younger than its oldest constituents. That doesn't make any logical sense. In fact, when you get that answer, it causes you to ask all kinds of questions, but so far we've gotten a consistent answer. That's where we've been. There are two other fundamental tests that we're going to pick up. One of these is going to be primordial nucleosynthesis. This is the f- creation of the original mix of light elements that came out of the Big Bang. It's Big Bangs to basically could produce primarily hydrogen. But there are going to be small traces of deuterium, a whole bunch of helium, and then really tiny quantities of lithium, beryllium, boron, and various of their isotopes. So for example, isotopes of helium, isotopes of lithium, and so forth. This makes very specific testable predictions. We should be able to go out, find the most pristine stuff left over from the universe, and measure the proportions of these elements. We can do this. We know how to do this. It's just a technological problem. Do we find those elements in the right proportions to have been made during the very narrow range of time when the universe was a hot, thick, dense soup during which fusion could actually occur? It's not like fusion in the sun because it's an expanding universe, not locked up in a self-gravitating body like a star. The third is, if the universe was very hot and very dense, we know from looking at hot, dense balls of gas around us, stars, that they become opaque. They basically cannot, light cannot penetrate them. You have, they basically have, if you will, a surface of last scattering. Just like in the same sense that a cloud becomes opaque. You can't see through a cloud of, of, of water particles in the air. That means if I go back at some point, if I look at the universe around me now, it's transparent. So that transition between hot and opaque and cool and transparent, the radiation would escape from that phase and it should fill all of space as a cosmic background radiation. I make very specific predictions about what that radiation spectrum should look like. It turns out it should be a perfect black body characterized by a single temperature. Is that in fact what I see? Or do I see something different? All of these propositions are direct predictions of the Big Bang Model. The question is whether we can find the evidence for these in, in the universe around us. That will either confirm or deny this picture of the formation of the uni- and evolution of the universe. So let's look at what we want, where we're going from. When we look around us now in the universe, we find that the universe is very cold and very, very low density. It's basically mostly empty space with galaxies spread out at large distances from each other. If I look at the speeds of those galaxies, I see that the galaxies are receding away from me with a speed of recession roughly proportional to to their distance, the Hubble expansion, exactly as you'd predict from an expanding universe. And as that universe expands, because it is filled with a cold gas of gas and photons, it will cool. It will obey the same gas laws that we would see, say, in a balloon in this room. As you expand, you cool down. So those those are what we expect. If I run the universe back into the past, what I expect is that the universe will be smaller, all the matter will be closer and closer together. Since I'm packing the same amount of matter but into a smaller volume, the density will go up, and because I'm packing that gas tighter and denser, the temperature around me will go up. So if I go backwards, run the movie backwards, I will see the universe get denser, I will see stuff get closer, basically just running the expansion movie backwards, and I will see my surroundings get hotter and hotter and hotter. So the question really comes down to this. Expansion can probably be explained in a lot of different ways. In fact, people did come up with very many different explanations for why Hubble saw a universal expansion of space. But if the universe was actually in a hotter, denser initial state, we have to ask a different question. Do we see any evidence around us in the universe today that the the material we see around us was once hot and dense? How do we actually go about establishing that that actually happened? So that's the goal of today's lecture, is to show you what that evidence is that gives me confidence that I can say that the universe was in fact hotter and denser in the past, that the Big Bang is the correct physical description of the expanding universe. Now one of the ways of going about that is to look around us and ask a question. Where did all the helium come from? If we look around us in the universe today, we look at the sun, or we look at other disk-like disk stars, in our own Milky Way galaxy, the so-called Population 1 stars. What I find when I take apart their constituents using spectroscopy, I find that they consist of about 70% hydrogen, about 28% helium, and only about 2% metals. Now you'll remember from our discussion of stars that metals means everything heavier than helium in the periodic table, all the way up through basically uranium, which is the last stable naturally occurring isotope in the periodic table of the elements. Now well, this is kind of an interesting number, 70% hydrogen, 28% helium, and only 2% metals. And metals includes things like oxygen, carbon that were made out of, iron, nickel, gold, silver, all that stuff, all taken together, a huge diversity of heavy elements only makes up 2% of constituents. We know where those metals came from, those metals in population 1 stars came from supernovae, which arose among population 2, the previous generations of stars. We went through the whole process of nucleosynthesis deep inside stars, how those elements get spewed out into the interstellar medium through the process of supernova explosions for the most part, and how those elements get incorporated into the interstellar gas, and so the next generation of stars has been polluted by those metals, and so the metal content goes up proportionally, the hydrogen content goes down a little bit, the helium content should come up a bit, because helium is a product of hydrogen fusion in the cores of stars, and metals are the product of heavy element fusion within those stars. Alright? So if we got, we, the sun, got our metals from POP2 stars, what do POP2 stars have? They obviously came from an earlier generation. They have about 75% hydrogen about 25% helium, and less than a hundredth of 1% of metals for the most metal-poor population two stars. So if I go back as far as I possibly can, and what I'm looking at right now are things like giants. These are stars that are about 10 billion, 12 billion, 13 billion years old. They've evolved up to the giant branch. I take their spectra, and I find these proportions of metals. So I see about the progression that I expected with one big difference. That's an awful lot of helium to start with, and a little tiny about of metals. So in going from twenty five percent helium to twenty-eight percent helium, roughly a three percent increase, I went from a hundredth of a percent to two percent. That's a factor of two hundred in metal content for a three percent change in helium. This is a bothersome number. Where did all the helium in the pop three stars two pop two stars come from? If it came from an earlier putative population 3 pop of stars that we haven't yet observed, and all the helium was made out of hydrogen, then where did all the metals go? Why wasn't a huge proportion of metals also made? In fact, we don't know of any way to make helium in stars that does not produce as a byproduct an awful lot of metals. So why is it we went from, could we in fact have gone from 100% hydrogen at the start of the universe And in one generation, produce 25% helium, but no metals, virtually no metals at all. The answer is you can't do it. We've never figured out a way to do it. There'd be no way to do it. Furthermore, to make this much helium, you'd have to have a huge number of stars in the past. The starlight from those stars would be visible as we look into the distant past through the cosmic look-back time effect, and we don't see them. We don't see the universe alight with stars 10, 13 billion years ago. The universe, in fact, didn't have a lot of stars in it 10 or 13 billion years ago, 13, 13, 14 billion years ago. So where did all this helium come from? We don't see the metals. We don't see the starlight. It didn't come from stars. So that means the helium had to come out of the hot initial phases of the Big Bang. This brings us to something now known as primordial nucleosynthesis. We call it primordial nucleosynthesis to distinguish it from the nucleosynthesis that occurs inside of normal stars. It's going to be the creation of heavy elements from the fusion of light elements, just like in stars, but the physics is different because now instead of occurring inside of a hot self-gravitating ball of gas, it occurs within the entire body of the universe itself during the hot initial dense states. Now, when the universe was only one second old, so I run the clock all the way back, predicting when, 14 billion years ago, all the matter was crushed together into one place. The so-called Big Bang is our fanciful name for that moment. And I start running the movie forward. As the universe expands, it cools. So at what point does the universe's temperature drop to about a billion degrees? How does the universe's temperature drop over time? If I look just one second after the Big Bang, the universe would have been so dense and so compact that the universe's temperature everywhere in the universe at every instant would be 10 billion degrees Kelvin. At temperatures of 10 billion degrees Kelvin, it's too hot for atomic nuclei to exist. The energy in a single photon of a 10 million degree Kelvin blackbody radiation would be sufficient to blow a nucleus apart into its constituent parts. It can overcome the binding energy of the nucleus. This means that what I expect before 10 billion, before one second, when the universe was hotter than 10 billion degrees, is I'm only going to find at this instant protons, neutrons, electrons, and photons, and and a few neutrinos and some other little particles running around. But the primary matter of interest to us are the protons neutrons, the constituents of nuclei, photons and electrons. Furthermore, through something I don't want to go into the details about, you expect from atomic physics, nuclear physics, that you expect a proportion of one neutron for every five protons. Now, if you have a copy of your notes from the previous day, it'll say something like one neutron for every seven protons. I had the wrong number down, and as I was going through the numbers last night, I realized it was wrong and fixed it this morning. So you get a chance to fix it in your notes there. So if I look around me, I get one free neutron for every five protons, and all neutrons are free because there's no way for them to last in a nucleus because it's so hot, the nucleus would be blown apart by an encounter with a single photon before it even had a chance to form. Now, what the universe looks like at one second is a hot, extremely dense subatomic particle soup. It contains protons, neutrons, electrons, and photons all kind of mixed together, but can not the protons and neutrons cannot yet stick in a nuclei. It's too hot. However, this won't last forever, because the universe is expanding rapidly, and as it expands, it cools. And eventually, as it cools, the temperature is going to drop to the point that when a proton and a neutron stick, they stay stuck, because there aren't any photons around energetic enough to break that bond. When this happens, it turns out I have to wait from one second until the universe is about two minutes old in round numbers. When the universe is about two minutes old, the temperature will drop from 10 billion to one billion degrees Kelvin. At one billion degrees Kelvin, there are not enough photons around that are energetic to break the bond between a proton and a neutron. So what happens is when you reach a billion degrees Kelvin, the neutrons and protons all begin fusing. In fact, because we have a proportion of one neutron for every five protons, every single one of those neutrons on average finds itself a proton fuses very quickly and forms deuterium. The leftover protons let's face it it's sort of a dating situation where there's one of one and five of the other four are going to be left out. So the other three protons are, or other four protons are going to be left without a neutron. So every neutron finds a protons and what you're left with is deuterium, the heavy isotope of hydrogen, whose nucleus consists of a single proton with a single neutron and a bunch of protons who couldn't find the neutrons before all the neutrons went away. And so you're left with one deuterium nucleus for every four protons, and you'll remember that a proton is really a hydrogen nucleus, because a hydrogen is just one proton surrounded by one electron. It's not an atom yet because it's too hot for the electron to be on top of the proton. So what we end up with is a sea of fully ionized nuclei, swimming in a sea of electrons and photons. So, at the end of two minutes of evolution, we expect that the universe will have gone from a soup of protons, neutrons, electrons, photons, and neutrinos, to a soup of hydrogen and deuterium, protons and deuterium, and then a bunch of electrons and a few other particles running around. And photons, of course. There's always photons. Lots of photons. And it's real hot because it's still a billion degrees Kelvin. Now notice this is a little different than the way fusion occurred in stars. Fusion occurred in stars by starting out cold and getting successively hotter. The universe starts out hot and gets successively cooler. So it's a backwards process. So what we're seeing is fusion here is really kind of a freezing out process, a condensation of matter out of the hot initial phases. How much matter freezes out is depending upon how fast you cool off. If you take a really long time to cool off, you'll freeze out all your matter. If you cool off really fast, only a small fraction of the matter will freeze out before it gets too cold for further fusion to occur. So that's a way of looking at it. There's a little hidden in here are really detailed tests about the rate of expansion of the universe at these unimaginably short time scales because the rate of expansion at those phases fixes how much... Fusion product you get out, whether you have enough time to fuse all the way through and exhaust all the possible product or all the all the possible raw materials, or whether the phase lasts so short that only a fraction of your raw materials get converted into the heavier forms. And that's going to be the key to using this amount of material coming out to learn something about these hot early phases. It's remarkable how much we can read the history. If something that seems unimaginably long ago out of what we see around us today. Now, you form deuterium. The two deuteriums consist of a proton and a neutron. Those deuterium are kind of big and fat, and they're sticky. They're sticky in the sense that the deuterium, if it finds another deuterium, will very quickly form a helium-4 nucleus. You can also combine with a proton to form 3-helium, but it tends to be moving kind of fast, so it's really hard to do that reaction. But helium, deuterium plus deuterium to form helium is very efficient at this point. You get a number of other smaller reactions, which use, use up a proton, a neutron, or even a helium nucleus every now and then, and you put all those together in the various proportions, you expect most of your deuterium should go into helium and some small fraction might go into these other stable channels, the helium-3 isotope, various isotopes of lithium, beryllium, and boron. So I start out with protons and neutrons and I start out with hydrogen. When the universe cools to a billion degrees, some of the neutrons can go with the hydrogen to form deuterium. Those deuterium can form together to form a two proton plus two neutron nucleus, a helium. And then I can pick up various combinations of deuterium, protons, and other helium to build myself into lithium, beryllium, and boron. But I can't make it to carbon. Because as I build up the heavier nuclei, they get a stronger positive charge. And those positive charges resist stuff being put together. Inside of stars, the way we built heavy elements was by making it much hotter. When things are hotter, the atoms are moving, nuclei are moving faster, and they can overcome the repulsion to come close enough to do their fusion trick. But in the universe, it's backwards. It's getting cooler. So your opportunities to build big elements are shrinking fast. So even though in principle, it's hot enough for you to stick together, by the time you get to the point where you start getting stuff heavy enough to become a precursor for carbon, the temperature's already dropped below whatever 600 million Kelvin you need to build up carbon from beryllium and helium, you never form any carbon. So you only form the really light elements. By the time the universe has gone from two minutes old to four minutes old, there's a two-minute window in which nucleosynthesis can occur. During that two-minute window, most of the deuterium, which used to be in the proportions of one deuterium for every four protons, has vanished. It's been mostly soaked up and turned into helium. If you work out the proportions, it should be roughly one in three. Is that right? Did I work those proportions out? It works out to about the right proportions. Tiny bits of it get soaked up into making... A little bit of deuterium is left over. A little bit of deuterium survives because the phase isn't long enough. And then all the other light elements up to boron. And then it stops. You don't get anything heavier than carbon. If you want carbon, you've got to wait until the universe gets around to making stars. So carbon and elements heavier than that come from stars. Elements from hydrogen up to boron came out of the Big Bang came out of the hot early phases of the Big Bang. And we see that. We don't see primordial carbon, but we do see primordial amounts. We do see the elements, abundances, bottom out. Now, by this point, by four minutes, what's happened is the universe has been cooling dramatically through this period. The temperature drops so cold now that fusion basically stops. The particles, the nuclei, are not moving fast enough to overcome the... Combined electrical repulsion of all the protons in those nuclei, and the fusion just simply cuts off. That's it for primordial nucleosynthesis. So that's it. Two minutes is all you got in round numbers. Actually, it's approximately four minutes, because you start at about one second. Beyond that, from one second to four minutes, that's all the time you've got to form elements. That makes very specific predictions. If you get to pin down the rate of the universe, you know how much matter you started with, or you can guess the amount of matter. You should be able to put those calculations along with all the nuclear reaction rates and the networks involved and make a prediction as to how much matter should I get out. So the aftermath, after four minutes, nucleosynthesis shuts off and isn't gonna start again for hundreds of thousands of years, maybe even billions of years, until stars begin to form. When this stops, The predictions are, coming out of the calculations, which are shown by the lines here on the diagram, it depends upon the density of matter, because the density of matter tells you the rate at which the expansion changes, and it tells you the amount of raw materials you got to start with, and how close those materials are together. So you get different predictions for different stuff for the formation of helium-4, deuterium, helium, and lithium. As the density goes up, I chew up more and more of my deuterium, and I make a lot more helium. If the density is small, the expansion proceeds very rapidly because there isn't a lot of matter to slow the expansion down a little bit. And so as a consequence, I will make less helium, but I'll have more deuterium left over. Now the details of this diagram are not as important as the bottom line. What I predict is that given the range of my knowledge of the density going in, I would have predicted a helium-to-hydrogen ratio in the range of 20 to 26%, and deuterium would be in the range of anywhere from one ten thousandth of a percent to a tenth of a percent. That's kind of the range I would expect. Both helium and deuterium are measurable in the universe. We can look for intergalactic clouds of gas. We can look at the absorption lines that they produce. We can look for absorption lines in the earliest stars. And we can see what the proportions are observationally. And what we find is the range that we get is represented by this sort of light orange band that I've drawn down through this diagram. And the circles are where the observations and predictions meet. What I actually get is a range, I've been overly generous here, between 22 and 25%, although it's actually better constrained now, and the deuterium should be between a 1,000th and two 2100ths of a percent of the remaining stuff relative to hydrogen. So it's a remarkable outcome. We basically can predict very precisely how much elements should have come out of this very early four-minute phase, minus a second, of primordial nucleosynthesis. And what we find in the universe is those elements in the right proportions, consistent with what we estimate for the density and matter and energy in the universe, which sets the expansion rate, which sets how long or short that fusion period is, and the expansion rate itself, the Hubble constant. So, so far we have a wonderful success here. We've correctly predicted how much stuff should have come out of fusion during the hot early phases of the Big Bang. There are lots of other ways to make expansion happen without a Big Bang but there's no ways for those models to make the light elements only the big bang can make the light elements and make them in the proportion seen so this explains where did all the helium come from it came out of primordial nucleosynthesis in the hot big bang so the current status of this is the predictions of primordial nucleosynthesis are in very good agreement with the predictions of the current observations There are a couple of areas where this is still being worked on. We really do need to make some refinements in our measurements of those primordial abundances. It's really hard to do, and it's a very difficult observation. It's challenging, but we're making a lot of progress on it. And so I think over the next few years, we'll see the uncertainties, the the amount of wiggle room we have in those numbers begin to shrink. In fact, it's already shrunk since the last time I gave this lecture. On the theory side... I gave you sort of a blythe number, one neutron for every proton. A few years ago that was one neutron for every seven proton. There's a lot of details of nuclear physics that were still working out and these numbers are still being refined because the number of neutrons and protons that you have to start with is your raw material base and that feeds into the other constraints. So there's a lot of interlocking constraints that makes it challenging. Also, some of these light element nuclear reaction rates are not very well known, and they're measurable in the laboratory. So there's both theoretical work to understand what the reaction should be, and laboratory work going on in colliders to have these fusion reactions go on in the collider and measure what the reaction cross-sections and rates are. that are then feedback into the theory models to make and refine the predictions. And these are all areas that are being pushed on. In fact, there are a number, two professors, especially here at Ohio State, over in the physics department, who are joint professors with astronomy, who are working in just this kind of area. They're working not only on the theory side but also on the experimental particle side to measure the reaction cross-section. So it's a very active area of research. The observation side we don't really contribute a lot to in this department although Mark Pinceno in our department has worked on looking at primordial abundances and estimates in the Sun. So it's, it's an active area of research. All right. So that's one. So we've got two of the pillars now of the Big Bang. We need to get the third. Now, After nucleosynthesis is over, after that first three to four minutes, the universe is still really, really hot. It's going to be really hot and really dense, and it's going to be opaque. If the temperature is above 3,000 degrees Kelvin, it's too hot for hydrogen and helium and all those other atoms to hold on to electrons. A hydrogen can grab onto an electron and become a neutral hydrogen atom, but almost as soon as it does that, a photon of enough energy comes by to rip that electron right back off again. And so what you end up with is when the temperature of the universe is bigger than 3,000 degrees Kelvin, the universe is basically a soup of atomic nuclei, 75% hydrogen, 20-odd percent helium, and then traces of the stuff, but it's fully ionized. Electrons are still running around free. Free electrons are troublemakers, right? Binding them up into atom is good, kind of keeps them out of trouble. But if the electrons are running around free through space, they scatter photons very easily. So any photon that tries to claw its way through the universe basically finds itself barely able to move a millimeter or a centimeter before it runs into another one, one of those blasted electrons. So the effect of the electrons filling space at this point and not being bound onto atoms means that they can basically absorb and scatter light of all wavelengths. And it makes the universe opaque to to light. Basically, a photon can barely travel a few wavelengths before it hits another electron. It's like, damn, another electron. I'll move that way. Ah, there's another damn electron over there. It just bounces all over the place. The effect is that if you were inside the Big Bang at this point, what you would see is a fog. It would be just like being inside of a fog bank. You wouldn't be able to see your hand in front of your face. And the reason for that is because of the opacity of these free electrons. It's just a a fog of haze. Just like, in many ways, the inside of a star. But unlike the inside of a star, it's expanding and cooling. So eventually, the temperature is going to drop below 3,000 degrees Kelvin. And that's when things get really interesting. So... Between nucleus effect from the Big Bang all the way up until the point the universe drops in temperature to 3,000 Kelvin, it is hot, dense, and opaque to photons. Photons don't move around, it's just a fog. Now, because this is a a hot gas, it's going to very quickly thermalize. And it thermalizes in the sense that it quickly gets a single characteristic temperature. A hot, dense gas... Of a single temperature, Kirchhoff's first law tells us emits a continuous spectrum. And that continuous spectrum is described as a blackbody spectrum. So, what you predict for this hot, dense, opaque state is a perfect blackbody spectrum characterized by a single temperature. We'll call it T. Now, as the universe expands, it cools. As it expands, the photons get stretched out, as we saw yesterday, and they redshift which means they go to lower energies, longer wavelengths. The peak of the black body spectrum also shifts to the red. But Wien's law tells us the peaks light of a black body is inversely proportional to its temperature. That means that as I get a longer and longer wavelength, a redder and redder black body peak that corresponds to a smaller and smaller temperature. So this blackbody peak is slowly sliding to the red as the universe expands and cools following Wien's law exactly. See, Wien's law even comes back in the universe. So as the universe expands, the photons all redshift, and we get a cooler and cooler blackbody spectrum all of Wien's law. Now, when does the universe get cooler than 3,000 degrees Kelvin? Well, we can predict that based on the expansion rate of the universe and the density of matter, which we got yesterday. We predict that that's going to occur when the universe is 300,000 years old. So we've gone from events occurring in the first second to first three minutes to now the first 300,000 years. So for the first 300,000 years of the universe, it's going to be completely opaque to photons. But at 300,000 years, the rules are going to start to change. And the way the rules change is the temperature is going to drop below 3,000 degrees Kelvin at this point. When that happens, when an electron jumps onto a proton, it stays stuck. And so the electrons very quickly find all those positively charged nuclei and they begin dropping out of the soup. They now get most of the electrons become bound to the atomic nuclei, mostly to hydrogen, helium, and the traces of other stuff that came out of the Big Bang. As this happens, the fog begins to clear. And now a photon, which could barely travel a centimeter, suddenly finds the window open and those photons begin to stream out into free space. The universe literally becomes transparent within a very short period of time. So when every single region of the universe, when the temperature drops below 3,000 degrees Kelvin, that region suddenly becomes transparent. The fog lifts. The electron fog is gone, and the universe is now transparent. Those photons begin to stream out into space. They will look... Looking back in time, remember, as I look deep into the universe, I'm seeing the universe as successively younger and younger ages in the past the further I look. As I look around me today, the universe is transparent. When I look back 10 billion light years, the universe is still transparent. But at some point, I'm going to look back to the time when the universe was only 300,000 years old. And at that point, the universe will suddenly become opaque it will look like the surface, like the photosphere of a 3,000-degree Kelvin star, because that's the temperature at which I go from transparent to opaque. So if I look back into the past, I'm not going to see all the way back to the Big Bang because the universe is going to enshroud the Big Bang in a fog at 300,000 years of age of 3,000 degrees Kelvin. So what I should be looking for are the photons that streamed out into the universe at the moment the window opened at 300,000 years what I expect to see is a 3,000-degree Kelvin blackbody. However, that 3,000-degree Kelvin blackbody is as it was emitted back then. Between then and now, the universe has expanded, and therefore that spectrum will redshift. So after recombination, this epoch in which the electrons recombine with the, with the neutrons, now, of course, uh, with the nuclei, Now, it's kind of a funny name because it sounds like it's combining again recombination. The process atomic physics of an electron finding its way onto an atom is called recombination. As the universe expands further from that 300,000-year-old age, it's expanding, the photons are transparent, they're moving through space, and they get stretched with the expansion of space-time. So as I go later and later, looking back on that epoch, I see it redshifted. What I expect is because that occurred when the universe was 300,000 years old, and I'm sitting here when the universe is 14 billion years old, that it will have been stretched by a factor of 1,000 in wavelength from 300,000 years to 14 billion. That stretch should convert a 3,000 degree Kelvin blackbody spectrum into one that's redder, equivalent to a 3 degree Kelvin blackbody spectrum. So what I would expect to see today is 3,000 degree Kelvin blackbody radiation, a 3 degree Kelvin blackbody spectrum redshifted by all the expansion that's occurred since the universe was 300,000 years old. And I do those numbers and I predict a temperature of 3 degrees Kelvin. Well, this was a prediction that was made in actually the 1940s and 50s. They predicted numbers between about 3 and 5 degrees Kelvin using the best estimates of the expansion of the universe but nobody really thought that it could possibly be observed. Some people were actually setting up to try it. A group at Princeton was starting to build antennas on the roof of the laboratories to measure this radiation. At the same time, two physicists, um, Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias at the Bell Laboratories, were working on microwave communications. Microwave is a primary way the telephone signals were bounced up off of the then-new communication satellites. And what they were doing was they were building a large, they built a large microwave antenna to measure the cosmic background of what is the cosmic sources of microwaves, among other questions, might be to, well, what could confuse a microwave signal? We obviously don't want to use microwave wavelengths where there are cosmic celestial sources like stars or the sun, is so bright it would interfere with telephony. That would be one of the motivations for Bell Labs, the phone company back then, the only phone company, Ma Bell, was worried about. So they built a horn antenna, and they were mapping out the sky at microwave wavelengths, and they found that their equipment gave a faint noise in the spectrum. They didn't know what the hell the noise was coming from. At first they thought they didn't build their amplifiers right, so they took their amplifiers apart and put them back together. They checked all the components. This was really good old tube stuff. No dice. No dice. Whatever they did to their amplifier, swap it in, swap it out, it was not coming from their equipment. It was not an electrical pickup problem in their equipment. Then they looked at their antenna. Well, their antenna is a gigantic feed horn, and pigeons were roosting in there. And in, in, in Arno Penzias' famous phrase, they found the inside of the antenna covered with a sticky white dielectric substance, a.k.a. pigeon poop. So they went in there with scrapers and scraped out all the pigeon poop. The noise still remained. They went through a process of elimination to their experimental methods to say, what could possibly be creating this noise? And they eliminated every terrestrial source. Pigeon crap, bad amplifiers, bleed over from nearby radio stations, car ignitions, you name it. They went through the whole gamut. They finally convinced themselves that what they were seeing was actually cosmic in origin. They didn't know why, they just knew it was cosmic in origin. And then they talked to the people at Princeton and realized they discovered the cosmic background radiation by accident. They were awarded the Nobel Prize in 1978 for this discovery. The group at Princeton was scooped by a group of Bell Laboratory experimenters doing basically looking for something different, and they tripped across the cosmic background radiation. In fact, if you turn on a television that's got an antenna on it, and you see the faint fuzz, if you tune up especially to UHF channels, some fraction of that fuzz is in fact the cosmic background radiation. It's that bright. Here's um, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson. Later years, there's their big horn antenna, and this is a publicity photograph taken shortly after their discovery of um, removing sticky white dielectric substance. But is it blackbody radiation? It's not enough to find background radiation, which they did. You have to show that the Big Bang makes a specific prediction. It's very, very specific. It's got to be a perfect black body spectrum characterized by a single temperature. Now, these are very tricky observations to make because you're working out in microwave wavelengths. It's hard to get through the atmosphere. There's lots of interference from the ionosphere, from terrestrial sources. You need to have very, very cold detectors because you're going after radiation that's 3 degrees Kelvin, 3 degrees above absolute zero. So we do work with experiments at the South Pole where it's really cold. We work at high altitude, the high Atacama Desert. Sometimes you put the detectors on high altitude balloons or sounding rockets. And, of course, the best thing to do is build a cryogenically cooled telescope and loft it up into high Earth orbit and just get it away from sources of background radiation. So there's lots of experiments that have been done. Here's some pictures of a couple of them. This is a microwave radio antenna array called DAISY, which is sitting at the South Polar Station, where it's really cold most of the year. Um, A balloon flight also launched from, this is near McMurdo, there's Mount Erebus in the background. This is a balloon flight carrying a mission called Boomerang. Or you go into deep space with missions like COBE, or this in case is the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, which was launched far away from the Earth to look into the cold of space. The basic result is a spectacular confirmation of the prediction. What we find in the spectrum of the cosmic background radiation when we remove all the foreground sources of stars and everything else is a perfect black body temperature characterized by a single temperature of two point two seven two five plus or minus 0.001 Kelvin. Yeah, we know that temperature to a milli Kelvin. Furthermore, it uniformly fills the universe. No matter what direction I look in, I see exactly the same spectrum with exactly the same temperature, exactly as predicted by the Big Bang Theory. Now, there is fine structure. It's not perfectly smooth. It's smooth to a part in 100,000. To give you an idea of what smooth to a part in 100,000 is, imagine I smooth the surface of the Earth to a part in 100,000. On average, the highest mountain and the deepest trench would be 60 meters not 8,000 meters, which is the case of Mount Everest or the deep ocean trenches. It's currently an object of intense study because these fluctuations are telling us something about the initial state of the universe. There's the black body spectrum, and this is what it looks like. This is amping the contrast to see the roughness. So the evidence for the Big Bang, expansion of the universe, has been observed. It's called Hubble's Law, and the ages are consistent with the oldest stars. Primordial nucleosynthesis, we see the elements and the proportions we expect, and the background radiation with a single temperature measured to extremely high precision. So far, the Big Bang is standing upon three very, very firm observational pillars. We'll see some more consequences of that in the subsequent lectures.